Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. Good morning and welcome. Going to continue talking about God's unstoppable church, his plan for this world. So that's going to put us in our Bibles. Grab yours if you've got it. If not, we'll follow along on the Sky Bible. We're going to finish out Acts chapter 4. We're going to hit the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 5. This is exciting stuff. Welcome. Let me say that. Glad for those of you sitting in the room. Glad for those joining online. Great opportunity to be together. This is super exciting because today we're going to talk about hypocrisy and greed. Yeah! It's really, really following up last week's encouraging message about persecution and suffering. This is so much fun to walk through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because you don't get to skip any of this stuff. But people would skip these passages if they could. These are hard, but this is why we do this. This is why we preach the Bible the way we do, because we want to see these things in context and figure out how we're supposed to apply them in our lives, because we are part of God's unstoppable church, his plan. So this is why we do it. Sometimes it's a little trickier than others. And as you left the passage last week, we were in that context kind of talking about the early church and their commitment to God and to God's people and how that played out in community and unity. And the last big thing we talked about was generosity. And so that's why we're getting what we get today, some specific examples about generosity. And from an even bigger picture view, really these things are about stewardship. And so what we're going to see as we study is one phenomenal example of generosity, a guy named Joseph, who we know better as Barnabas. There's one great example, and then one really, really difficult example, one really kind of negative example, a harsh example, from a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Now, if you're not real familiar with the Bible yet, and you're in that age where, like, you know, you're around childbearing years, and you're writing down cool names in the Bible to maybe name kids, and you're like, ooh, Sapphira. Hold on just a second. <laughs> You're going to want to hear this story. <laughs> There's a reason there aren't little kids named Sapphira today, just like there are not little boys named Judas or Achan, because this does not play out well for Sapphira. We're going to learn that. But, but this is going to be a message that demonstrates some hypocrisy for us, and we probably don't need that many demonstrations of hypocrisy, do we? We kind of get that. Don't raise your hand, but we know what it means, right? Hypocrisy is along that notion of we'll do what I say and not what I do. Hypocrites are people who will go to great lengths to make themselves look better in almost any situation. I read a, a story, I don't know if this is true or not, but a, a young guy went to the dentist for the first time ever as an adult, right? He'd gone to the dentist as a kid, but his mom set up the appointments or like that. Now he's out on his own, he's moved to a new town, and he finds a dentist and he goes and he fills out that new patient questionnaire. That's always so much fun. And this dentist, I guess, wanted to get to know people. And so one of the questions there was, tell me about your hobbies, and this guy goes, he writes down frisbee golf, love me some frisbee golf, love playing Xbox, love playing my guitar, and flossing regularly. Now, oh, come on. <laughs> if he lied about that last one, he's a hypocrite, right? That's what we do. But lots of us struggle in this area. So buckle up. This is going to be a fun study, but it's pretty challenging. Acts chapter 4, let's finish out the chapter. We just heard this importance of being generous. And so Dr. Luke writes this. Thus Joseph who was also called the Apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Joseph was a Levite. He was a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the Apostle's feet. 
What do we know about Barnabas? He's a very generous guy. Now, remember back in the day, wealth was primarily tied to your land, right? They didn't have E-Trade. They didn't have investment portfolios. All your wealth was tied up in the land you owned and the animals you kept on the land you owned. And so the idea was usually you'd hang on to that land because that's what you were going to give as an inheritance to your kids. Barnabas doesn't do that, right? And we're assuming in this passage, Barnabas was led by the Holy Spirit, sell this field, take all the money, and give it away. I think this is really neat. Nobody remembers Barnabas' real name was Joseph. Everybody calls him Barnabas because it does mean son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas did. He walked around encouraging people. You have to do that to get a great nickname. So think about this practically. What's a spectacular way to encourage people? Just by being generous towards them, right? By being a good gift giver. I'm not a great gift giver. I married the all-time best gift giver I've ever seen. My wife is phenomenal in this. She just listens to people and pays attention to what they want, and it shows up in a gift. And she passed it along to my daughter. I passed my part along to all my boys. They're horrible gift givers. But Macy is fantastic. Macy keeps gifts in her dorm room, just in a closet, for spontaneous gift giving. Like somebody will come by and she'll be like, oh, I got you this. And be like, you didn't even know I was coming. <laughs> That's how good a gift giver is. She learned from the best for sure. But here's the thing. If you're a great gift giver, it brings you joy. For sure, the people getting the gift get joy, but you get it as well. So I don't know if you've ever been in that spot. If God's blessed you and, and you're able to go out to eat at a restaurant and you get, leave a huge tip for your server, or you're able to anonymously meet someone's need, yeah, that makes them happy, but it makes you super joyful as the giver. That's one of the things we're supposed to take away today. Generosity and joyfulness, they're really linked together. And so Barnabas is a phenomenal example of that for us. He gets the money from selling this field, and I don't know what it was, you know, gold or denarii or whatever, and he puts it in a pillowcase or he puts it in a big wheelbarrow, and he comes and he drops it where? The text tells us, at the apostles' feet. Now, what does that teach us? Barnabas trusts these guys. Otherwise, there's no way he brings up a big old load of money like that and just drops it on them, right? I've seen that here at OCC. We've been blessed this way before. Someone will sell a property and have a big chunk of money or a more sobering example and happen. Someone will pass away and in their will, they'll leave a huge gift to the church. And what does that mean? That means they trust the church. They trust us to be good stewards of that money. That's the only reason they'd give it, Right? And we want to earn that trust. We want to be so good about every offering that God provides for us here. And, and so that's why we're transparent about those things. We have our annual meeting every year at the beginning of the year. And we stand right in this room and we present our budget to the entire body. We present our financial situation. We say, this is what we're doing with the money God gives. We've got a bunch of little checks and balances in place like that. The money you give here, I don't know if you know this, they count it on Monday morning. And not one person does that. Two people do that. So there's accountability with that. All of our checks require dual signatures. I can't go out and just spend money willy-nilly. Somebody else has to sign off on that too. We do these things on purpose, right? Because that's what God wants us to do, to earn your trust. And so we see here in the early church, these people, especially Barnabas, they gave generously. And they trusted the apostles to be good stewards. So we start with this great example of giving faithfully, giving sacrificially, giving without hypocrisy. And that follows the pattern we've already seen here in the early church. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2 when it first formed and they said they got together and they shared everything they had to meet needs? It's a beautiful thing. Only lasted a couple chapters. 
here in chapter five, the fallenness of man rears its ugly head. We're gonna learn about Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, and they're gonna demonstrate for us what greed looks like, okay? I'm gonna read all 11 verses of this together so we catch it in context. I'll kind of unpack it as we go along. Join me here on the screen, Acts chapter five. But, and right away, we see this is gonna be one of those compare and contrast examples, right? Barnabas did a great job, but watch out. Barnabas was generous. A man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, they sold a piece of property, circumstances very similar to Barnabas, but with his wife's knowledge, Ananias kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and he brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is supposed to contrast with Barnabas, right, who we understand the Holy Spirit nudged him to sell it, and he took all the money and gave it to the apostles. And it looks like Ananias and Sapphira want that same credit. Like they want to be known, hey, we sold something, we gave all the money too, but they didn't give all of it. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed where? In your heart. You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Now, time out for a second, because if this is your church, we, you know we don't pass a plate. We don't take an offering that way, right? But imagine we did. And imagine the plate came by, and you dropped your money, and you handed it to the next guy, and he dropped something in and dropped dead. What would you do? <laughs> I'm taking that back. I'm going to put a little more. <laughs> Just cover my bases here. Let's, let's be safe, right? This is a weird, weird deal. Super awkward. When Ananias heard these words that he had lied to God, he fell down, he breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And that part works the same in the church today. If there's something I don't want to do, I call our intern Josh. And I'm like, man, I'm too old for that, Josh. <laughs> Somebody hit a squirrel in the parking lot. Would you take care of that? We don't do that, but we could, right? So, so some young, healthy, powerlifting guys come in and they, they take Ananias' body out to be buried. And, verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, Sapphira came in, not knowing what had happened. She'd been texting Ananias, but he wouldn't respond, right? And Peter said to her, and this is important, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Ananias had said, we sold it for this much. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who've buried your husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out. Josh and a bunch of young guys showed up, right? Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out. They buried her beside her husband. And you ready for this? Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. All right, be honest, and you don't have to raise your hand. Do we like this passage? We don't like this passage at all, right? This sounds really, really harsh. I was struggling with it as I was praying, as I was trying to take notes and write this sermon, and I went to one of my favorite commentaries, probably my favorite, and it explained it in a really helpful way, and the author said, do you know why this bothers us? Because we're not dead. Because we read this account and we go, man, if God is killing people who don't give enough, what am I still doing here? If God is wiping out people who are bad stewards, I've been a bad steward before. Am I in trouble here? And I think so many of us struggle with this because we read God's word and we know about his character and what do we see over and over? He's a God of grace. 
God is a God of grace, but it's hard to evaluate grace as God applies it because he's applying it in his perfect wisdom. All we're seeing is the results, right? And sometimes it looks, well, God gave this guy more grace than he gives this guy, and we don't know what's up, right? It's truly a reminder God's ways are higher than our ways. We get that part. But, but the weird thing is about God's grace, we don't deserve it anyway. That's the true definition of grace. Grace is God giving us things we don't deserve. Grace differs a little bit from mercy, right? Mercy is what? Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So grace and mercy are two sides of a coin that God alone flips. He knows how this works. And we don't know all the details of this transaction, but it seems here like Ananias and Sapphira don't get any grace. Again, this is the part that that it looks like they just wanted full credit for giving everything away when they didn't. I don't know how this transpired, right? I get this picture in my head because this crazy market that we're in now, like they had a piece of property and they had it appraised and it appraised for $200,000 and like, great, we'll sell it for $200,000. And they go to sell it and the market's crazy and they got $300,000 out of it, right? And they got together and went, okay, <laughs> let's give the $200,000 because that's what it's worth and we'll pocket the other $100,000 and nobody will know. But God knows. I'm not going to ask for show of hands on this one either because I'm not trying to preach anybody to death here today. But, but in my head, I'm like, well, that makes sense, right? I could see myself doing that. The problem for Ananias and Sapphira became the hypocrisy. They wanted credit for giving more than they actually gave. But the property was theirs, right? The proceeds were theirs. They were under no obligation to give it all away. But they indicated they would, and then they lied. They held some back to make themselves look better. I'm not trying to fill in all the blanks here, but it seems to me like this couple struggled with hypocrisy. They struggled with greed. And man, there are important things we can learn about that. You grabbed an outline on your way in. I've listed five things about greed that we see in this text. And the first is, greed is actually an example of stealing. It certainly is in this context. That's what we see in verse 2. It said, Ananias kept back some of the price for himself. We see it correlated in verse 8. He did not give the whole sum. I'm not sure how the apostles would have known that. I couldn't find anything that said like public transactions of, of sales of property. Or you, I, I think God must have just told them, right? But here's the thing we do know, because there's a Greek word there in verse 2 for kept back, really neat word, nosfidzomahi, and it translates literally as embezzle. Ananias is embezzling money, from himself, right? <laughs> he's embezzling money he said he was going to give. Instead, he's keeping it, and that's stealing. Embezzling is stealing. We know that. I think it was motivated by greed. Our greed can cause us to steal in a bunch of ways, and some of them people won't be able to tell. Like, if we cook our books, we cheat on our taxes, that, that, that's stealing, we're paid salary to work a certain number of hours, but we sit in our office and spend a lot of time on the internet not working, that's stealing. If we pad our expense account, if we take staples and copy paper from the office, those are forms of stealing. Statistics in the United States say that the biggest problem most corporations have is not consumer theft. It's employee theft. You go into these big box retailers and they've got a guy sitting in security there at the front door to watch out for shoplifters and most of their stuff's going out the back. <laughs> It's the employees who are stealing it, and it's a real problem. Stealing is wrong. People do it are greedy. Seems like Ananias and Sapphira fell into that trap. 
And it's not like it didn't appear they were generous, right? Because they gave a bunch of money to the apostles. They just lied about how much. Why did they lie? They were hypocrites. They wanted to look good. Instead, they wound up stealing. They wound up embezzling money. This is an unusual story. All right, greed is stealing. I think you can also make the case in our passage, greed is demonic. Did you see that? That's what Peter says in Acts chapter 5 and verse 3. Hey, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart so that you would lie to the Holy Spirit? Just a quick review. As Christ followers, who's supposed to fill our heart? Holy Spirit. We know that, right? We see that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Paul tells us, and do not get drunk with wine, because that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is something we've talked about before, and I think this gives us evidence that most likely Ananias and Sapphira were not true Christ followers because the text says Satan came and filled his heart. And we've made the case before, genuine Christ followers cannot have their hearts filled by Satan because they are already filled with the Holy Spirit. So this could go a long way towards explaining how they wound up in this predicament, but let me ask you this question, because with this particular wording, Peter says, you've allowed Satan to fill your heart. Does that remind us of anybody in the Bible? Reminds me of the disciple Judas. He was the CFO of the original 12 disciples, right? We studied him back in the Gospel of Luke. Judas was with Jesus for three years. He hung out with the other disciples for that period of time, and he was robbing them the whole time. Luke wrote this about him in Luke chapter 22. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot who was of the number of the 12. And Judas went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and they agreed to give him the thing Judas wanted the most anyway, money. So Judas consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. We learned that about Judas and I get this real strong Judas vibe here with Ananias and Sapphira. The greed they display seems demonic. It seems authored by Satan. Because when Satan fills someone up, that's when they're going to trade Jesus for money. I'm going to say that's what happened here in Acts chapter 5. Judas was robbing from God. Ananias and Sapphira, they're robbing from God. We're going to ask ourselves some tough questions today, church. Are we robbing from God? Are we saying, I'll give to the church, but I'm not going to give so much that it'd be sacrificial, right? Do we remember that Satan is a taker and God is a giver? He gives us everything we have. Greed is basically stealing. In our passage, it's clearly demonic. Number three, greed is essentially lying. That's what Peter accuses Ananias of in verse three. Hey, why'd you lie to the Holy Spirit? And the backstory takes into account our excellent example from Barnabas and, and then our bad example with Ananias and Sapphira. Because somehow the Holy Spirit instructed Barnabas what to give and how to give. And even though I think they were unbelievers, it seems like the Holy Spirit was nudging Ananias and Sapphira to give. He's convicting Barnabas, who's a Christ follower. He's nudging this couple. And when God's Holy Spirit tells us to do something, and we come along and tell somebody, oh, I did that, and we didn't do that, what, what else do you call that? <laughs> That's lying. And Peter calls him on it. And he says, you didn't just lie to men, you lied to God, because he knows and sees all things. He's sovereign Lord. And so we need to dig deep here, because imagine this happened in this service today, right? Imagine somebody walks in here with a wheelbarrow full of cash and comes and just drops it at my feet. Would that look generous? Oh my goodness, it look incredible, right? So can we look generous and still be lying? 
Well, based on this text, I'd say yes. I think we see examples of this on social media, and I don't see hearts, so I don't know this for sure, but you've seen this. Somebody will make their profile picture something on Facebook or for their birthday, they'll ask you to donate to this cause or whatever, and, and they maybe have not given a thing to that cause. But because they've asked now publicly in front of everybody, it looks like, oh, they're so generous. And we don't know that that's the case, right? They might not have given anything or a very small percentage, but they post it on social media so everybody goes, oh, they are so, so generous. Are they? Number four, greed is like a window to our hearts. Man, this is convicting. This is what Peter's insight is in verse four. He says to Ananias, why have you conceived this deed where? In your heart. Church, before something is ever revealed in our balance sheet, in our checkbook register, in our financial report, our greed problem starts where? In our heart and in our soul. And let me just throw this out because there's not a one of you who's sitting here today who showed up and, boy, I hope Pastor James just beats us up about money. That'll be fun. That'll be a great message, right? So, So I want you to know, I'm not preaching at you, I promise. I am preaching from God's word and I'm preaching to you and to me. I need to hear this as well. I'm preaching to everybody who makes up God's church. When we examine our heart, when we're willing to examine our heart, do we find generosity or do we struggle with greed? This is a huge issue for me and my family this week because I was foolish enough to pray for persecution last week. That was great. And so we've had some big issues arise this week, and they've really convicted Christina and I to ask this question, how do we steward God's money? There's a little news flash for you in case you didn't know this one. I'm not filthy rich, okay? Now, we are ridiculously blessed. We get by all the time. God has never let us fall behind, but we also never get ahead. <laughs> That's the thing we were struggling with this week. We've been married almost 27 years, and every time we think, oh, good, we're covered on that. We think we can coast just a little bit. We might even be able to save some money. Some crisis hits, and we're back to being even again. And remember, please, being even is much better than being in the hole. We're so thankful to God for that. But our money situation truly looks like the manna the Israelites got in the desert. Like you get it just for that day and that's all you get. You can't store any up and just got to trust me that I'm going to have it for you tomorrow. And, And that's a hard way to live sometimes. And it makes you ask questions like, God, what are you up to here? And I think asking that kind of question kind of reveals my heart. It reveals our hearts. So we want to ask these questions for everybody, not just me and my family. What is the desire of my heart? Am I willing to deal with that? God, am I just going to trust you in the way you provide? God, have I made money an idol? Have I made anything that money provides an idol? How seriously are we willing to examine ourselves? Now let me give you just a few examples because I think there's a lot of people who go, oh, no, 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 Pastor James, money's not an idol for me. Money's not my God, but comfort might be my God. And does more money allow us to fuel that God of comfort? Yeah, and I can't answer this one for you, only you can. Is status an idol? Have we made our title or our success our God? Would having more money allow us to buy the fancier car, the bigger house, more technology, and then we would present that to others, and that would be a picture of how successful we are? Is status our God? Is beauty our God? Spend a bunch of money to achieve beauty, surgery, whatever, gym membership, doesn't matter. And I've asked these questions before, and almost invariably, somebody will come up to me with this example of, well, I heard about this guy 
And he lived this really frugal life. He lived in a small little dumpy house and, and he drove an old beater car. Or he took public transportation and he died. And it turns out he had like $10 million. What about that person, right? Money wasn't an idol for him. Well, what was his God? Was it security? Did he exist knowing, man, if the whole bottom falls out, I've got this money to fall back on? And security becomes his idol? It's really challenged this week of security is my idol. I can't answer all these questions for you. You know who can? You can. You ask God, see what he reveals to you. If we're willing to examine our hearts. Because this passage tells us greed can be a window to our soul. Greed addresses stealing, lying, Satan's influence, the condition of our heart. And finally, in this passage, I think we see greed is contagious. Look at verse 9 in chapter 5. Peter says to Sapphira, why have you agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Our boy Ananias comes in, he lies, he dies. What happens? Sapphira comes in three hours later, she lies, she dies. They were in lockstep. Whatever he had, she caught it. It was contagious, right? Well, let's be honest, it's pretty easy to rope people into plans that involve greed because we're fallen people and having stuff is fun. And I've heard people make the case, well, Sapphira, she should have done better. She was just being obedient to Ananias, right? Might still be a good name for a baby girl. No. What did we just learn in the last chapter? In the question, am I going to be obedient to God or to men? We're supposed to be obedient to God. Sapphira should have walked in and said, yeah, I love the old boy, but he has lost his mind. I don't know where he is. He won't return my text, but he's in a bad spot, right? She didn't say that. And she suffered the same fate. Why? Because greed is contagious. And I think the easiest place to spot this in our lives today is in the home. If you have parents who are greedy, who are hustlers, who are scammers, what are they going to teach their kids to do? But if you have parents who are good examples, who are sacrificial, who are generous, what's that going to teach kids to do? We have a responsibility in this area. Ananias and Sapphira got greedy, and that is dangerous. And it costs them. And I think they are included in God's word as an example. We see many, many more examples of God's grace, of God's mercy. Here we see this one example of God's seriousness about greed and hypocrisy. So let me start to wrap this up. We've got one last takeaway. <laughs> I said this in the first service. Do you know what a, a pastor means when he says, let's start to wrap this up? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> But I can't go on in the first service because you guys come here at 1030. We could go on and on. I mean, but I've already got this written. So <laughs> trying to stick on this amount of time. But, but we love talking about this so much. How do we apply it? On the outline I presented that last point is there are three main themes of the Bible. I've been studying God's word for a long time now. And I think there really are three themes. And we've seen them real clearly over the last several weeks. We saw them in the Easter message. And then now that we've jumped back into our study in Acts. But on the outline I say they are sin, suffering, and stewardship. I think those are the things that come out over and over again. Some people are too narrow-minded. They're too myopic, and they'll only see one of those. They read the Bible, and all they see is sin, right? We're sinners. We're sinners. We need to repent. Some people read it, and all they see is suffering, and that makes the Bible a very hard read. But I think the reality is all three of them are there, and so we need to evaluate our lives on that basis. How do these things work together? 
I think the number one theme of the Bible has to deal with sin. It's the fact that God loves us, wants to reconcile us back to him. He takes care of the sin problem. But everything else plays out in a, I don't even remember where I stole this from, but, but you've heard me say this before. The theme of the Bible is there's blessings when we're obedient and there's consequences when we are disobedient. And when we think about that, that really helps us focus on this stewardship aspect. So what does it mean to be a good steward? We've talked about this many times before. Stewards are just managers. We are managing somebody else's stuff. We don't own the stuff. It belongs to somebody else. But we're supposed to come along and take good care of it, right? And there's something so important for us to grasp in that regard. If we're Christ followers, we should know God owns everything. And he is a very good steward. He's a very good manager. And he sets us up. He wants a positive ROI. He's looking for a good return on investment, right? He wants to give us these things to manage in a way where we're going to go out and produce more fruit. We're going to go out and make more disciples. That's what he wants. And as you study God's word, you actually see this over and over, the Bible modeling this for us. Read the Proverbs, which is a great read, all this wisdom literature. And so much of it is about how we're supposed to invest wisely. And not just with our resources, right? Not just with money, with time, with talents, with the way we value people with the way we join God in his work over and over again. Go back to Genesis, study Joseph. Joseph saves for a rainy day, really literally saves for a huge drought. What happens? He ends up feeding tons of people. Why? Because he invested wisely. Nehemiah funds ministry projects because he invests wisely. Look at the parables of Jesus. I don't know if you realize this or not, 25% of Jesus' parables are about stewardship and about money. And I think they're there because we're supposed to consider our own stewardship in light of sin, in light of suffering. Do we think we struggle in this life financially because we're sinning? Or are these struggles supposed to teach us how to draw close to God? How to trust Him in trials? Trust that He'll provide? Doesn't matter what our circumstances are, we're supposed to be wise managers of God's stuff. That's what I feel God's really trying to teach me in this area. It's that good stewards just uncover more and more opportunities to love people well. Good stewards can care for God's people even better. I think that's why we get that example of Barnabas and then this bad example of Ananias and Sapphira. And it's why it happens right here. Because we just heard about the importance of community in the church, of loving God, of loving his people. Wise stewards help God's people. Wise stewards help people who haven't yet put their faith in Christ. That can be a thing that draws people to Jesus. And that way we're providing God a good ROI. We're not wasting time or technology or the resources God has provided. We're bringing him the glory he's worthy of. I think that's why Ananias and Sapphira's sin was judged so harshly because there were huge needs in the early church. Do you remember this? The church started out, it was like 120 people and then it blew up, now it's 5,000 people. And a lot of these people had real needs. They had come from far away on the day of Pentecost, and now they're just there being part of the church, and they don't have anything. They don't have jobs. They don't have anything. And so this, the way they were going to be provided for was by God through people. That's what God was intending to do, was care for his people. And so the fate of Ananias and Sapphira was not just about the misuse of their money. It was the fact they were trying to sabotage God's mission to provide for these people in the early church. I think that's one of the main focuses here at the start of chapter 5. So let's ask the question, how how does this play out for us today? 
Do we think we own our stuff? Or do we realize that we're just stewards of things that God has provided? How do we talk? Do we walk around saying, well, that's mine, and that's mine, and I earned this, and I deserve this, and I'm going to consume this? Or do we say, none of that is mine. It all belongs to God. Do we say that out loud? I'm not an owner. I'm just a steward. God doesn't want to just give to me. He wants to give through me. He wants to give through me to others. In that sense, if you think about it, we're really like the executor of someone's will. The executor gathers everybody in together and reads the will. They don't own that stuff. They're just in charge of explaining where it goes. They're getting their direction based on a a dead person's will. This is what God is doing to us, only he's not dead. And it's not a paper will. It's not an electronic will. It's his will. His will be done, like we prayed about last week. He's saying, it's all my stuff. You just be the executor. Now, this comes up pretty often in conversations I've had with people about giving to the church. People will come ask me, because I'm the pastor, hey, well, I'm supposed to tithe, right? Isn't that the number I'm supposed to go by? And I have to tell them, well, well, truly the tithe is an Old Testament concept. It's not repeated in the New Testament. However, the New Testament is actually tougher. New Testament says we're supposed to give sacrificially and joyfully. Those two things go together, right? I mentioned that joy and generosity go hand in hand. But people want to ask about the tithe, and I think I've finally figured out why we get hung up on that. And if we're real honest, if we're, if we're asking ourselves these questions today, I think because we think it's too high, 10%. Studies show that on average in America, the giving of, as a percentage of income to churches is about 15 to 2%. And that's a weird number because let's be honest, some people are given 10% or better, and a lot of people are given absolutely nothing. That's how you arrive at that low number. People ask about tithing, and here's the reason why. Here's the question we want to ask, but we won't ask the pastor. Why does God get 10% of my money? See, that's an ownership question. That's not a stewardship question. Now, I love folks, and I don't like it when people are mad at me, but but I've had people that I know really well come and ask me that question. Why does God get 10% of my money? And I'll boldly answer back, why do we get 90% of his money? We could frame this a lot differently, and this would sound like a better deal. I know it would. I could frame it this way. Hey, what if God came to us and said, listen, I own everything, right? I created all of it, but I want to share some with you. Let's split up my stuff. We'd be like, cool, what percentage do I get? And God would say 90. We'd go, 90%? That is amazing. What a deal. That's way better than the IRS gives me. I'll tell you that right now. We'd like that if the IRS came and said 10%. Yeah, property tax, don't get me started. Social Security, we'll do all in 10%. We'd love that. We'd think that was so generous if Uncle Sam did that. Why don't we think it's generous when God makes that offer? Now, church, here's the deal. I may be preaching to a room full of Christina Greens and Macy Greens and, and, and the people who are watching online, just great gift givers. Let me say this. To those of you who are generous and to those of us who struggle in this area, if we're here as Christ followers today, do we recognize before we give anything to anyone, God gave us everything? Amen? It's all his. 
God is a giver. He's a giver. He's not a taker. God comes with an open hand, not a closed fist. That aspect of God's character is another one of the realities that makes following Jesus different from any other religion. If there are folks here today, if there are folks who are listening online who are not yet Christ followers, and today is the day you're going to surrender your life, today is the day you're going to begin dying to yourself in order to live for Christ, then you've got to address something, right? The way false religion works, the way the world works, is we think, well, that must be transactional. I bet if I'm going to do that, I'm going to have to give something, right? What's it going to cost me? It's a question we ask all the time. I want to become a Christ follower. What do I have to give to God? Well, there is something we have to give to God, you know? It's our sin. We give God our sin, and he showers blessing upon blessing upon grace upon grace. Does that make us bad gift givers? Here, God, I got you this. It's my addiction. God makes lists differently than we do, right? When he makes out his Christmas list or his birthday list, I'm not sure. When he makes out his list, it looks different from ours, right? Our list has toys and technology on it, and he writes down on his list, I want the sin of the world. This is how we know the story in the Bible isn't made up. Nobody would make that up. We serve a God whose kindness and love so far exceeds our comprehension. He says, hey, you give me your sin, I'll give you my righteousness. I'll throw in abundant life, free of charge. Church, that's not a fair deal. And Jesus went to the cross. He died on the cross to pay the debt of that sin for you, for me, for sinners all across the world to be able to reconcile people back to Father God. And now he's invited everyone who has ever professed faith to be on mission with him. We're supposed to go out and join him in making disciples who make disciples. And we can take him up on that job offer and he's gonna say, hey, in order to be able to do this, you're gonna need some stuff. Let me put it in your hands. You go out and manage it for me, but I need you to do it like this. You can't do it like this. Do we have open hands like God does? He's saying, I don't want you to hoard this stuff. You're not supposed to keep all of it. You're supposed to share it, just like the early church did. More like Barnabas, not at all like Ananias and Sapphira. And when we do our part, that's where the abundant life that God desires for us comes in. I referenced this New Testament verse earlier, and it's a tough one. Paul instructs the church in Corinth, but the message is just the same for us today. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion or a certain percentage, for God loves a cheerful giver. I'm going to ask a question. It's not a trick question. Who's the most cheerful giver in the history of givers? It's God. Who's the most joyful when he just showers blessings on us that we're supposed to steward for his glory? It's God. No one in the history of history has ever outgiven God. And no one on this planet is more joyful about that than God himself. And the idea is that when God's people steward his stuff correctly, we actually become more generous. We become more joyful. And then we can go join God where he's at work, and I promise you that is abundant. Amen? God bless you guys. I sure do love you. Let's pray.
Sovereign Lord, help us to understand our role as executors, as stewards of your stuff. Everything we have comes from you. God, can we go out as a church, as Orchards Community Church, as individual Christ followers, can we go out with open hands? Just be used by you so you can bless others in your church, bless others who don't yet know you? God, that's what we desire. And not because it's the key to the abundant life. We desire it because obedience brings blessings. And we want to be blessed by you and be blessed to be used by you for your glory. God, we love you and we praise you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.